Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5. It's good to see you this morning. Um, Good to see um, smiling faces my direction and hope you're ready to hear a word from the Lord. Isn't that a great truth that uh, he's never failed before and he won't fail now? It is so easy sometimes when we see the world around us and all that is happening and wondering about what's going to be the next step and what's happening there just to know that God is in complete control still. And so as we journey today through this book, we're going to be reminded again of the Lordship of Jesus in a healing situation and in a particular way that Jesus responds to a question. And so we are in the midst of this series called Signs where we are looking for, watching the signs that Jesus did on his way to the cross in the book of John. Now we talked about the first half of this book is particularly a, called the book of signs because there are seven listed here and John specifically calls them signs and not miracles. And the reason for that is because they are pointers for us. They are things that point us to truths about Jesus and who he is. John chapter 1 famously is that great prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the, what happens as we journey through the rest of the book is that John is showing us evidence of that in the way that he teaches, in the way that he interacts with people, but also the glory of God is demonstrated in Jesus through the way that he performs these signs or miracles. So today, as we kind of walk through this third sign, we're going to be in one that's not usually thought of at the same level sometimes as some of the other ones. I mean, we think about water under wine, there are literally songs written about that, and we, we, we talked, um, in the weeks ahead, we'll do next week is walking on water, or feeding the 5,000, the week after that's walking on water, we've got raising Lazarus from the dead, those are big signs that are common to us, but today seems to be one that's a little more in line with what happens in the other Gospels. And yet there's an amazing little piece at the end of it that shows us the intentionality of Jesus and gives an understanding of who He is. So in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, after this. After what? After the miracle that He performed that we talked about last week. After the healing of the official Son from a distance, that this idea is this, this immediately comes after that. There was a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethesda. By the way, that's a, that's a difficult translation that we have. It's a proper name there of Bethsaida, Bethsaida, Bethesda. There are lots of these things. We, Beth, Bethesda is the best kind of understanding we have of it. In Aramaic, which has five colonnades. And with these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now for a long time, scholars debated whether this was a a place or a kind of amalgamation of places. But as we've come to understand, and as archaeology has improved over the years, they have found what they believe is this particular spot. We have a picture of it here, and I know that doesn't look like a whole lot, but you can imagine a couple of thousand years ago, there were two pools. There was an upper pool and a lower pool. They talk about these five colonnades. You think about those as five like large umbrellas or coverings because so many people were coming 
to rest and to be there that were hoping that they might be healed. It had gotten a reputation. Lame, blind, paralyzed. We find out a little bit later there was this kind of idea that the angel's wings might touch the water. That was a kind of a, 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 a fantasy story or something that they thought was true that was kind of gotten passed around. And so anybody that thought they could get to the water when the angel wings touched it would be healed. And so people would gather, you can imagine, desperate people looking for cures, looking for answers. We talked about last week, the the dad who exhausted all of his resources. You think about living in a time when there was less known about medical conditions, and as a result, they tried absolutely anything. I think about the woman that we won't talk about during this series, but the woman here in John that comes to Jesus that touches the hem of his garment and touches the hem of his garment and says that she had spent all her money going to anywhere she could find in order to try to be cured. People were looking for anything they could. And so it describes this, that short time after this, there was a Jewish festival taking place, which meant that the city would be full. And as the city is full, Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for that. And at the Sheep Gate, there is this place where there are lots of people who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then it tells us about the desperation of one particular man in the next verse. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. Now, I just want you to imagine what you were doing or think about what you were doing 38 years ago. I was an eight-year-old boy. That's been a long time ago, right? There's some over to my left that weren't here yet. Some of you in the room weren't here yet, further out. 38 years is a long time. Now, when you imagine that life expectancy in Jerusalem was much shorter than it is today, you're you're talking about someone that had lived more than half their life for sure. We don't know how old this person is. But by uh, any estimation, the average lifespan was somewhere in the 50 to 60 years range. That was a good life. And so this person had dealt with it from an early age, from as long as they could remember, they had been disabled. Now, the word used there isn't exactly descriptive of exactly what is going on there. But by what happens in the miracle, we know that they had been where they couldn't walk. They couldn't get up. They couldn't move around. So anywhere they wanted to go, they had to be carried. They had to have someone to help them. Anything they wanted to do in their lives needed someone that was going to assist them in that process. Even to get to the pool would require someone there to get down to this pool and under the colonnade. And they had lived for 38 years that way. When I was 12 years old, uh, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Now, I'm now not 12 years old. I'm considerably older than that. But I have lived more than 30 years with a disease. Now, my disease is not one that requires someone else to help me all the time. I'm able to self-regulate, self-check, do all of that on my own. But at the same time, even in my life, in my existence... 30 years of every day, multiple times a day, considering, thinking about, worrying about what is going on in my body, is something that can wear on a person. Right before I walked out, I looked down to see what my blood sugar was to make sure that I wasn't going to go into diabetic shock out here for you all. I'm sure you all appreciate that, right? I got an amen on that. There we go. All right. 
And I said, that's something that's manageable. That's part of my life. I can't imagine 38 years in a day when there wasn't medical technology or help dealing with something every day. When Jesus saw him lying there, now this is the interesting thing because there were lots of people lying there. There were lots of people there. And realized he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to get well? Now, sometimes people kind of preach that and talk about that as if from the guy's perspective, that would have been a sarcastic question almost, right? Hey, you want to get well? Like, what's the obvious answer to that? Absolutely, right? Like, he's not going to say, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for coming by. Appreciate it. Now, here's what we have to understand, too. This is early in Jesus' ministry. The, the words of him are just starting to get out. People don't realize who he is. This will be kind of a public declaration in Jerusalem of who he is and his healing power in some ways. But as he's there and he just asks the man, do you want to get well? This man doesn't immediately think this guy has the ability to transform my life in this moment. He's skeptical, if you will of anyone that can do anything for him. After all, he's looked and he's tried and he's wanted to for 38 years and nothing has worked. Do you want to get well? The man answers him and says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. See, he took that as a question from Jesus, basically saying, why aren't you well yet? Why haven't you got down there? You've been here for a long time. Why haven't you made it there yet? And the man basically says, and I think this is an invitation in some ways to Jesus, if you would be helpful to me, if the water is stirred, if you could take me down there, that'd be great, because I don't have anybody that can do that for me. And in the process of me trying to get down there, we don't know if it was just legs paralyzed and he would try to scoot his way down or he would try to call for someone to help. We're not sure about the severity of all that is happening. Well, his legs aren't working. We don't know about his arms. And he's just trying to get down. He can't get down there. And you can imagine that kind of moment when any time that the water stirred and they thought healing was in the waters, that suddenly there would be a mad rush for the waters. And this guy was always left behind. So he says to Jesus, not, yeah, absolutely, Jesus, I want to be healed. He basically says, here's why I can't be healed. Here's why it can't work that way. Just a little aside for us, and this isn't the main point in the passage, but I want us to understand it. There is this kind of interplay happening here where Jesus is offering this man complete healing and the man gives excuses why that's not possible. And I want you to think about in your own life that there may be an area in your life of of sin, of a relationship that's broken, of a health situation, of something that is a burden to you, that is difficult for you, that you just can't get past. And Jesus may be offering you freedom from that, freedom from the guilt of that, freedom from the tyranny of that, freedom from the enslavement of that sin or situation, reconciliation in a relationship that you have worried about and thought about for years. It may require some steps for you, but Jesus is offering you that reconciliation, that healing, that freedom freedom from sin and you end up making excuses in your own life why that just won't work there used to be a joke among preachers sometimes about the various committees in a church i don't know if you know this but we're a baptist church 
We have committees. And people laugh that aren't Baptist about some of our committee names. For instance, the committee on committees is always one that gets laughed at. So you have a committee that's whole job is to figure out who's going to be on committees? Yes, we do. But they said there's an unofficial committee in every church called the Cold Water Committee. And the whole job of the Cold Water Committee is to pour cold water on any ideas of something that might improve things in the church because we've tried that before or that'll never work here. In my 20 plus years of pastoring, I have run into the Cold Water Committee formally and informally multiple times. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? This man, in some ways, is acting as his own cold water committee of one. Jesus, do I want to be healed? <laughs> you can almost say, yeah. why would I not want to be healed? But I can't get down there. Nobody's there to carry me. Jesus, if I could do it, I would be down there, but I can't. Now, he didn't call him Jesus, because we'll know from later. He didn't even know who this guy is. So it's not like he is in awe of him or like, absolutely. He just thinks this is some weird guy walking up to him saying, hey, would you like to be better someday? Yes, but I can't get down there. Don't you see the issue? I can't walk. Next verse, Jesus just says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Now, I just want to be real honest with you this week as I've studied this scripture and I've looked at this scripture. The next thing that this man does is the only positive thing the man does in the whole story. Now, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute and you'll see what I mean in a minute. But it says that instantly. So Jesus says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And I don't know if the man suddenly had feeling in his legs. I don't know if he suddenly felt them strengthened. I don't know if there was something about him physically that was different in that moment or if that happened when he got up. But it says that instantly, in that moment, without hesitation, as soon as Jesus said it, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. I watched this week. There was a, a video on... YouTube that um, in some of my research I found about a man who had been paralyzed from the waist down for years and through some medical technology and some other things, some stimulation, he was able to walk again. And it's first slow and it's, it's, it's uneasy and he's got, he's got things that he's holding on to, but you can see the expression and the joy of his life as he immediately begins to start to get this feeling in him that he's, that he's got energized and that he's walking and it's like there is joy that is just surging through him. And I can't imagine what that would feel like after 38 years. I mean, I've tried to imagine what it'll be like the day that I still believe is coming when they tell me to throw my pump away and I don't have to worry about insulins anymore. But I can't even comprehend that. But after 38 years of not being able to do anything and hoping and wishing and praying and looking for answers in that moment, he does. And there's a cold water committee waiting on him on the other side. Next verse says this, now that day was the Sabbath. We'll talk about that in a morning moment. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it just says the Jews. The reality here is this isn't probably a bunch of lay people Jews that are saying this. This is the religious establishment saying this. And they said, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Now, 
if I was the man in that situation, I, I don't believe I would have said things exactly like he said them, all right? Can you imagine? You haven't walked for 38 years. This man comes along, tells you you're fine, get up and walk. You pick up your mat and you start to walk out and you are filled with so much joy and somebody says, why are you walking with your mat? Stop that. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Now, if I was this guy, I would have been a little effusive in praise. You're not going to believe this. I couldn't walk for 38 years. I'm sorry if this is offensive to you, but listen, I have not been able to walk in 38 years. This guy came along, told me to get up and take my mat and walk. I started walking. It's a miracle from God. Praise be to God. That guy is from God. He is like the Messiah. I am so excited for that. what's happening here. We need to get on board with that. But that's not what this guy does. He passes the blame. Sounds a lot like, in fact, in just a moment we're going to see, like the first sins in Genesis, right? Adam, why did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Well, the woman that you gave me made me do it. Look what this man says in the next verse. The man who made me well told me, pick up your mat I'm just doing what that guy told me. That guy told me to pick up my mat and walk. I don't know about the religious laws. I've never had to worry about whether walking on the Sabbath is a sin, really, to be honest with you, because that's not something I've been able to do. And so I just did what this man told me, and I got up and started walking, and that's all I know. This man told me to walk. I started to walk. And instead of saying, praise be to God for the way that God has healed you, praise be to God for the way that God has changed your life, praise be to God for all that has happened in your life, they say, who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk, they ask? Now, this guy doesn't know because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Sometimes the closer we are to religious ideology and churchy stuff, the more judgmental we become in general in life. And when they should have rejoiced over a healing that is apparently from the Lord in this moment, they are more concerned about the rules and the regulations that are not being followed to a T. It's equivalent to someone coming in on a Sunday morning, dressed inappropriately or saying things that are inappropriate, and comes in the midst of a sermon and is saved by the glory and the power of the Lord, and then walking out the back door and somebody saying to them, that is awesome, we're glad you did that, but if you're going to come to this church, you're going to have to start dressing like this and acting like that. And I'd like to think that's never happened, but I know it has. Who is this man that told you just to pick up your mat and walk? Because they realize all of a sudden that the problem is not this man walking. The problem is there's somebody out there telling people that they don't have to worry about the rules. Now, here are the rules that we're talking about. We're not talking about scriptural rules. There is nothing in scripture that says you can't walk with a mat on the Sabbath. And I've been reading through the Bible. Several of you have been reading through the Bible. It's one of those things that we just got through with Leviticus. We're in Numbers. It's, it really is like, whew, I'm done with Leviticus. That's good. And then you go to Numbers like, oh, we got it again, right? It's there. I'm glad nobody amen that, but you know it, right? Okay. 
And in Leviticus, there are rules about the Sabbath and how we do it. It basically just says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what does work mean? Well, the modern, uh, the most uh, kind of natural interpretation of that is what you do on a regular basis every day to provide for your family is your work. Right? So don't do that. Well, the Jewish people, the teachers of the law had said, yeah, but that's not enough for us. We need to figure out ways to explain it. And they had come up with pages and pages and pages of rules upon rules upon rules about what it meant to work on the Sabbath. And one of those included you could not carry anything from one place to another. That's work. And so what they're concerned about is not this guy in that moment. They're like, suddenly we have a bigger problem than this guy because there's somebody out there that's saying that well, our rules about what following the Sabbath is are not the right rules. They'll begin to question us. They question us. They'll question the religion. They question the religion. They'll question God. If they question God, then who knows what happens? We have to stop this now because they're not following our man-made traditions about the way that the Bible is teaching what happens here. And if they don't trust our man-made traditions, they may eventually not trust the Lord. Now, in modern terms, we may come up with our own man-made traditions of the way we dress or the way we talk or what we sing or where we go or how we act. And we think that if someone is violating our man-made traditions of what we think the Bible may have said, that they're going to go all the way. Their problem was we can't let someone else have authority here. It goes on to tell this story that the man walks away and Jesus finds him again. Now I want you to think about this question in your mind, Okay. It tells us Jesus had slipped away. It tells us the man didn't know who he was. Jesus understood that. Jesus could tell that had happened. So here's my question to you as you think through this, and we'll talk about it in a moment. Why did Jesus re-engage this man? Why not just slip off? The Bible says, after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Now, there's some description. Why is he in the temple? There's some that believe he hasn't been able to make proper sacrifice. He's going to the temple to make proper sacrifice. Perhaps even in that moment, those that are over authority, we don't have this recorded in Scripture, but said, okay, we're trying to find this guy. You need to go to the temple to make a sacrifice in order to, to pay for the sin that you have here. We're not really sure about that, but he's in the temple and he says to him, see, you are well. See, you're great. It's good to see you up and walking around. It worked. I'm glad that that worked. And he just gives him a, a, a phrase. This is something that Jesus will do with people. We're not, he's not necessarily saying, although it could be interpreted that way by some, that what he did was called, or what he had was caused by some sin. He just says, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now the question is, what does he mean by something worse? What he's saying is there is an, a reality that is worse than not being able to walk for 38 years. And that reality is spending an eternity separated from God. And he says to him, so stop sinning, start living your life for the Lord, do what you're supposed to do. Just a simple interaction. Uh, In that midst of that, he had to tell him his name and what he was doing and why he was there. Because this man goes from not having a clue who it was that healed him to knowing exactly who it was to heal him. And we see that in the next verse. Remember I said that the man doesn't do anything good except getting up and walking when Jesus says, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus responded to them and said, My Father is still working, and I am working also. And that is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Now Jesus begins a long discussion. We're going to talk about a little bit of that in just a moment. But I want you to get an understanding. Each one of these miracles tells us something. Each one of these signs tells us something about Jesus and who He is. And I know there was a lot of explanation through that. I know it was a lot of, of kind of, of details walking through what's happening there in the Scripture. But we did that because it tells us one important thing. And it comes to this particular moment when Jesus says, My Father is still working and I am working also. Because I know that doesn't seem like a bold claim to us. That doesn't seem like an outrageous thing to say, but to those Jewish leaders, this was the most outrageous thing Jesus had done or said up until this point. For two reasons. First of all, he calls God my Father. Now, in corporate worship, like what we're in now, there were times when, as a group, they would refer to God as our Father, as our God. But no one ever individually used the phrase that Jesus used here because it was declaring a direct connection between the person and God. My daddy. My dad. And so it was not saying that this is our Father. This is not saying this is Israel's God. It was saying that God the Father and I are in a special relationship that you don't understand. And then the second thing is, he says, God's working, so I'm working also. Now, remember, the point of the Sabbath was in the very beginning in Genesis, when God creates the heavens and the earth, it says that on the seventh day he rested. When he institutes the law for the people, he says, just as I rested, so you might rest. But the debate became over and over again through Jewish philosophical and theological circles, does God ever rest? anymore. You ever had those philosophical questions in your life? Can God make a rock that he can't move? You ever get in discussions with people about things that don't really matter, but are over our head and how difficult they are? Questions that are just nagging in your life, like did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Those kind of questions. Some of you will think about that later, all right? (laughs) Of course, why would they? Oh, uh uh-oh. What he says here, though, is all of them came to the conclusion that if God were to stop working, that the earth would fall apart because he is the one that is sustaining it all. And it's not really work because it's outside of it. He created it. He created the law so he could do whatever it is. So Jesus is not saying this like, well, if he's doing it, I can do it. What he's saying is the only one that is able to work on the Sabbath is God the Father because he is holding all things together. And if my father, my personal father, that with whom I am equal and have a special relationship is working, then I ought to be working as well. There are people that still claim that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, divinity, divine Lord. And yet this place is exactly where he does it. He says, I am equal with God and because of that, I can do healing on this day. 
So what does this passage teach us about Jesus? It's really, really simple. The passage teaches us that Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord over sickness. He is Lord over our health. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the law. He is Lord Almighty. He is equal to God. He is one with the Father. Jesus the Father, Jesus the Son, I mean, excuse me, the Heavenly Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one. Now, I don't understand that in a way that I can explain it, but it is true. And in this passage, he basically says, not that the rules don't apply to me because I'm some kind of special person or I'm outside the law. He says the rules are different because I am the Lord God. I created the law. It is the Sabbath was made as a way for people to rest and to be in touch with the Lord. I and my Father are working now. And what happens in the rest of this is that Jesus begins to describe the ways that He is waiting on the Lord to work, the ways that He is watching the Lord to work, and as they do it, they become more and more infuriated with the reality of what is going on. I mean, it says that at the end of what we just read. That is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's one thing, but he was calling God his Father and making himself equal to the Lord. Jesus is directly saying that he is God. Now, back to my question I asked you a minute ago. Why did Jesus go back and re-engage the guy after he had healed him, before the guy knew, didn't know who he was, Jesus reengages him and it starts the persecution and the vitriol coming from the Jewish leadership. Why did Jesus do that? Because he knew that in order for him to fulfill the purposes of God for which he was sent to this earth, there was going to come a moment in time when the Jewish leaders, when those that were the religious leaders of the day, would have to turn on him because his purpose was not to come and just to teach us good things about God. His purpose was not to come and just do miraculous signs about the power that God has in our lives. The purpose for which he came was that he came to die on the cross for your sins and mine and for the sins of the world. And he had to kick start that into high gear. The book of John is a relatively short gospel stuff. And what we're going to see starting here in chapter 5 is the increasing hatred and vitriol that comes towards Jesus from the religious establishment until we get to the point that he is arrested, he is tried in a false mockery of a trial and is convicted of trying to claim that he is equal with God, crucified for your sins and mine and risen again on the third day. And this is the beginning, not of the miraculous signs, but of the hatred that would lead to that. And Jesus knew that no matter what it meant for him, the purpose for which God had called him to come had to be kick-started into action and the time was now. How does he know that? Because he is in constant communication with the Father and he did what the Father told him to do. In fact, that's what Jesus says in the next little part there. Verse 19. Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever 
the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Here's the call for us today. Understanding that Jesus is Lord, understanding that He is doing what the Father has called Him to do, is for us to follow the example of Jesus as He sets out in that verse. If you've been around this church for a while or many churches, there's a Bible study that is transformative in people's lives that helps them to see the realities of what Jesus discusses here. Because basically what Jesus says is that the example we should follow of him is that we should see where God is working and join him in that work. That we should see where God is already on the move and join Him in the process that Jesus says, I look and see what the Father is doing, and when I see what the Father is doing, I join Him in that work. Now, He's talking in a huge sense, the fact that He is here coming in order to save us from our sins, but He's also talking in a very real sense. We have the picture from this scripture of Jesus just walking in, seeing this guy laying there. The guy didn't ask for it. The guy didn't petition Him. The guy didn't say, Jesus, can you do something about this? He didn't know who Jesus was, but the Father led him to it and said, this is the moment that I'm going to kick this into another level. We're going to go to a higher place because I'm going to do something that's going to begin to bring the anger from the religious establishment because that is the plan that God has and that is what God is calling me to do. Now you tell me, those of you that have been around, what's the Bible study that tells us to find out where God is working and join Him in that work? Experiencing God. We did it. A few years ago, it was a church family in separate groups. It uses the story of Moses in the Old Testament, but it's the same principle here. Where is God working? Where is God already working? You see, the realities are, and in that Bible study it talks about, God is already working around you right now. It's a great quote from John Piper that says that at any, every moment, God is doing a million things around you. And we are aware of about three or four. God is always at work around us. We need to find where God is working and join Him in that work for the glory of God and for the sake of His kingdom. And that's what Jesus did here. He declares in that place, I am the Lord, the Father. My Father is working. I'm working with Him because we are one in the same. And our goal is to discover what it is through the Spirit that God intends for us to do with the advocacy of Jesus and what He has done in cleansing us from our sin. And we are to join Him in that work and move forward on mission for him and so my question to you today as we close is simply this is that what you're doing right now are you finding where god is working and are you joining him in that in this church in your community in your school at your workplace in the world at large are you finding where god is working and joining him if you want to ask me some hey if, if you think i don't even know where that is or what that would look like i would love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like in your life in this church or this community or this area and I have some questions for you and talk through that and find out where is god working around me and how can i join him because that is ultimately the calling on all of our lives i just wonder are you answering that call let's pray together Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the glory that you have displayed and the miraculous that you can do. And Lord, we know that you are working constantly around us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't know it. 
Lord, I know there are people here today that are like this man who have been living with something for 10 years, 15 years, 38 years. Physical ailment, an emotional difficulty, a relationship that's broken, a sin that you just can't shake. Lord, they need to be set free today. So Lord, I pray first of all that they would answer that question honestly of whether or not they want to be healed and they would simply respond as this man did to whatever you call them to do, to give up, to get away from, to reconcile, to apologize, to set right, to change. And they would just simply obey. Lord, there may be people here today that have never experienced being saved. They've never accepted you as their Lord and Savior. I mean, I'd be sure what that is. Lord, I pray that in this moment, you would make them realize the necessity for that, that you would make them uncomfortable in this place so that they might understand the importance of coming to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room no matter where we find ourselves on the spiritual spectrum, or for everybody in this room, that we would build our lives on simply saying yes and being obedient to you, to look for where you are working and follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.